another episode of Treating You, presented to you by Bart's Health. This is the podcast that gives a voice to our 18,000 staff, shines a light on their day-to-day working lives, and shows you, the public, some of their amazing stories and experiences. I'm your host for this episode, Freddie Cocker, and I'm in the communications team at Bart's Health. In this podcast, we chat to the people who keep the trust going and the most inspirational stories from our patients. We discuss how they came to be at Bart's Health, their healthcare journey, and how they treat you. motivation for me doing this episode came from my own personal experience listeners seven years ago my dad suffered a pulmonary brain embolism out of the blue which puts him in the icu and almost cost him his life he spent several months in the icu at queen's hospital romford before going to a step down ward at whips cross hospital at bart's health until he was discharged in this episode i'm speaking to two specialists on stroke care at our trust dr paul bogle is a consultant interventional and diagnostic neuroradiologist and dr oliver spooner is a consultant stroke physician and mechanical thrombectomy lead for stroke medicine. Both of them work at the Royal London Hospital. In September 2020, Paul performed the world's first aneurysm surgery whilst the patient was awake. In this episode, we discuss how and why people can be vulnerable to having strokes, why it's not just elderly and unhealthy people who have them, what you can do in your life to reduce the risk of you having a stroke, and why some people's brains may be better protected against the worst effects of strokes than others. We end with a discussion about what life is like for the patients and their families after a serious stroke, which can often be life-changing, how loved ones can help the individual get their life back together and support them in the best way possible without infantilizing them. So this is the myths and misconceptions of stroke care with Dr. Paul Bogle and Dr. Oliver Spooner. Paul, Ollie, welcome to Treating You. Thank you both so much for coming on and talking to me. Before we dive into the episode, can you both tell the listeners how and why you got into healthcare, maybe your journey into Bart's Health and how where you are today? Ollie, do you want to start with you? So I got into healthcare, I think, as I was always interested in the application of science to people and the difference modern medicine can give to people's lives. Bart's Health has been a big part of my life for most of my life. So I started at Bart's in the London Medical School at the age of 18, doing my first ever job as a doctor, qualifying at the Royal London Hospital. So after qualification, did my first job there. Since then, I've come back for stroke training and took up the role of a stroke consultant here on the hyperacute stroke unit. Most recently, my daughter was born within Bart's Health, so I'm very invested in the place. Early in my training, in my stroke training, when I was working in the hyperacute stroke units in the early stages of their development, I saw the difference that stroke medicine made to patients, how much possibility there was in the future with emerging research. Now, subsequently, we've seen the evidence for these centralised specialist stroke centres and the outcomes they have for patients, which have been Mm. fantastic. And Paul, same question to you. So firstly, uh, thanks, Freddie, for having me. So I did my uh, undergraduate training over at UCL, just down the road from uh, Bart's. Entered at 18, came out at 24. Perhaps slightly different to Ollie and many other people. My father was a GP, and actually he told me not to enter medicine and go into a banking career. So obviously I did the the complete opposite because I was, you know, the typical teenager that doesn't listen to his parents. I certainly don't regret any of my decisions, and I've loved practicing medicine in the United Kingdom loved medical school and it was a it's a great honor and privilege to to help people and long may it continue i did my radiology training in london and then i dedicated neuro radiology training in london after which i went and spent a couple of years at the world famous karolinska institute in stockholm for a couple of years and then after that i spent uh, a couple of years intermittently working in germany in a huge center in stuttgart i entered interventional neuroradiology. i made the decision back in 2007 actually, 
And it was because I could see even at that stage that interventional treatments, these minimally invasive treatments, would offer a, you know, a lifeline, let's say, to patients with no major surgery to the cranial vault, to the skull, rapid recovery times. And I could just see this whole, let's say, subspecialty blossoming over the next 10 to 20 years. And I wanted to be part of that. And mechanical thrombectomy is, I think, just the beginning of that journey. Why did I join BARTS? Well, I have friends at BARTS. BARTS is one of the biggest and best known institutions in the country. I get to work with exceptional clinician colleagues like Ollie and many others. And I think it's really the people that make BARTS. The doctors and the nurses are fantastic people. And they always do try to pull out every stop. One thing that I think about the, the teams that I work with at the Royal London is we might not have the famous name, we might not have all of the money, but one thing that we've got is grit. And we will, we will keep going, sometimes to the detriment of our bodies and our relationships, but we just don't give up for our patients. So that's the kind of place I want to be a part of. Excellent. We're here to talk about myths and misconceptions in stroke care. So first of all, can you tell me what a stroke is for the listeners who don't know and how it affects someone? So there's two broad types and there's lots of subtypes. Some are rare and probably make are only familiar to stroke physicians. But broadly, this is a sudden insult to the brain, a sudden damage, and it can be either ischemic or hemorrhagic. Ischemic usually being a blockage of an artery, either by a fatty buildup or a clot blocking it, causing damage to an area of the brain, or a bleed in the brain, which is hemorrhagic. There's different subtypes of those two. Anyone can have a stroke, even children, but they are quite rare. Some people are more at risk, and there's inherent risk factors that make it more likely in someone. It's not true that you have to be a certain type of person with certain risk factors mm. to have one. You both told me about a teenager that was transferred to you who had a stroke. That's incredibly young. So how and why can someone that young or anyone of around that age be susceptible to having one? So the younger age group of patients who have a stroke and maybe come to us for thrombectomy, which we'll talk a bit about later, they are less likely to have your typical risk factors like blood pressure and, and diabetes as your older patients. There's a higher rate of other things, tears in lining of vessels, that's called dissection. It's more represented in your younger patients. And also undiagnosed heart issues are more common. There are rarer and rarer causes like sickle cell or blood clotting disorders. Those are your most represented causes in the younger age group. And yes, we've treated a 16-year-old. They're not part of my service or the adult thrombectomy service that I lead from the stroke side on. Paul's team have treated some children very mm. recently with working with the paediatricians. Yeah, so just to come back on some of those points there, uh, Freddie and Ollie. So I completely agree with what you said there, Ollie. You know, the more common causes are sort of abnormalities in the heart that necessarily aren't diagnosed. And this could mean that a blood clot formed sometimes, you know, in the leg or elsewhere that typically wouldn't get to the brain can bypass the normal filter mechanisms that exist within the body and somehow end up in the brain. And then the dissection, which is the tear of the lining of the blood vessel. And that can occur actually sometimes even after what might appear to be relatively minor trauma, you know, you know, a rugby game or something like that, for example, a twist to the neck. And sometimes it's important to, I'm sure we'll come on to this later, but just to sometimes be, be aware of symptoms, you know, someone complaining of, sort of chronic neck pain and things like this after maybe a minor trauma. You know, maybe not to just dismiss it out of hand. You know, we can do quite quick imaging tests and things like this to exclude these sorts of underlying problems often. 
So, Paul, a stroke or embolism can happen to many people, sometimes completely mm. out of the blue and mm. catches them unaware. And my dad had this when he was at work. So luckily mm -hmm. he was able to be admitted to hospital straight away, but others aren't so lucky. And I'm sure there are mm. many people who who've maybe had one at home on their own and sadly died as a result. Can you tell the listeners mm. why it's so important to catch a stroke early? As you said, mm. you've had patients with severe strokes who have gone home the next day, which is unbelievable. Yeah. So this falls into a motto that we have within interventional neuroradiology and within stroke, and that's essentially time is brain. So for many people, actually what we found over the last decades of research is that when you have a blockage, there is an immediate amount of damage that essentially occurs, and you won't be able to necessarily repair that. A thromboembolism is the clinical term used for essentially a blockage in the blood vessel that supplies the brain. So some damage occurs almost immediately. But what can happen actually in, in a large number of people is you have this alternative flow of blood to kind of compensate for that block. Now, not everybody has this. It exists to a varying degree in different people. But what that alternative blood flow, what we call collateral flow, does it is it effectively buys time for the brain so the brain is still sort of undergoing a slow let's say slow burning death cells are dying for every minute okay and it's varying how many cells how many brain cells how many neurons die per minute but it's in excess of several million per minute which translates to huge numbers per hour etc etc so if you think time is brain what you need to do is recognize the symptoms as quickly as possible get the person who you think is having a stroke to hospital as quickly as possible and for the imaging of the brain and for any treatment decisions to be made as fast as possible. And so that means everything involved in this is time. Just think, I have to do this quickly. I have to get to hospital fast. Sometimes there is a particularly, you know, for some people in the older generation, they sort of think, oh no, I'll be fine. And oh no, I don't want to burden the doctors and they're already too busy. And actually in truth, the complete opposite is true. We want to be called. We want to see you. And we want to see you quickly, because if that happens, we have the best chance to get you back to functional independence if there is a blockage, so that you don't end up having any long-term disability. You can go back to your normal lives, and we can get you in and out of hospital fast. So in a nutshell, just remember, time is brain. If you think you've got symptoms, and we'll come on to the symptoms that can occur, just get to hospital as fast as possible. Before we talk about those symptoms, I just want to quickly talk about the factors and how we can spot the signs of a stroke or what factors affect someone's vulnerability. So what can the listeners do in their everyday lives to reduce the risk of them having a stroke as much as possible, like whether that be diet or keeping their mind active? Because a term you used off air to me, Ollie and Paul, was brain plasticity. So tell me a bit about that if you can. So in terms of risk factors of having a stroke, there are multiple risk factors that we, that we know about and that people might know about, about their own health conditions. But as we talked a bit about before, that there might be a proportion of patients have an undiagnosed problem that they won't have control over. So a tear in the lining of the neck that can happen either spontaneously, in the lining of the artery in the neck that can happen spontaneously out of the blue or can be triggered by an injury or hyperextension, we call stretching of the neck in an, an exercise or activity. Or there can be lifestyle and medical history factors we know that diabetes and blood pressure, otherwise known as hypertension, are big risk factors in our patients we see presenting with stroke. And high blood pressure is seen as one of the biggest risk factors 
that we can control to prevent a stroke or recurrent stroke. This is due to the pressure, we think, the pressure it puts on your blood vessels that supply the brain and inside of the brain, and also the effect on the heart. There are other risk factors that we ask about when someone presents with a stroke. So smoking, we know excess alcohol has an inherent stroke risk in itself, but also has a link to high blood pressure, making it more likely for one to have a stroke. And these are things that one could modify in their own lifestyle to, to reduce the risk. In terms of brain plasticity, we talk about plasticity, especially in the recovery phase of a stroke. So when you are entering the rehabilitation phase after the first few days, you may or may not have had our emergency stroke reperfusion treatments, such as clot busting drugs like, like alteplase uh, that we give as an injection, or like we have already said, mechanical thrombectomy. And that's the phase that we will start looking at how can we aid recovery and on our hyperacute stroke unit and acute stroke unit, which are just two different areas of the ward. One is less highly monitored than the other. We work closely with the nurses and the therapists as one big team to then aid their recovery in terms of rehabilitation. And brain plasticity is the rewiring of the brain, the recovery, making new connections in the brain to try and recover function. One thing that happened to my dad when he went into the ICU was that doctors speculated with us that because he was fluent in multiple foreign languages, it might have been one of the many reasons he was able to recover from the stroke as well as he did. Mm. Is there any evidence for intelligence or brain activity or something else around that nature to enable greater protection from the harms caused by strokes? There is some evidence. There's some evidence and some theory. So some research evidence and theory. So there is a theory that people who are multilingual, speak multiple languages, have essentially brain trained themselves. If you're speaking one language, you're, you're essentially inhibiting the other and switching between languages. That kind of brain training seems to make people more resilient to the damage of the brain caused by stroke when it affects the speech centre, but also possibly would aid recovery and rehabilitation. There is certainly evidence from people with dementia that higher levels of education, more cognitively demanding jobs, etc., etc., those actually are involved with, let's say, slower progression of dementing diseases like Alzheimer's. So these things, obviously, whilst all the diseases are dissimilar, they do obviously still affect the brain. And so they are probably all interlinked. The way that they're interlinked is yet to be elucidated. But essentially, listen to your mum and stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good message, mate. I want to talk about spotting the signs now and how people can be more aware of when someone is having a stroke. Now, you already talked about time is of the essence there, Paul, but there was also a public campaign about strokes, which was called FAST, which I think did a real good number on people's consciousness around this. What is the one thing perhaps when it oh, comes to misconceptions that you'd want listeners to know about strokes. And what's the biggest misconception you've experienced yourself in doing this? Going back to what Paul was saying, time is brain. There's a misconception that even if it's, even if it appears minor to a member of the public, that there isn't something we can or should do and that it might not get worse. So patients who have a minor stroke are at risk of having a, a recurrent stroke and also sometimes the progression of that. We'd want to see patients as early as possible. One of the FAST campaign did put that to the forefront, the public consciousness, to get talking about it and push that time aspect, that the end of the, the FAST acronym. We want to see people as early as possible because we have the highest chance of being able to give 
emergency treatment to help reduce the severity or in some cases reverse uh, the severity of the stroke. So there's certain treatments that we can give in that scenario that, that people might not all be aware of. One of the misconceptions, I think, would be they might not be aware as the awareness of the emergency treatments we can give. So firstly, if people come within the first few hours, and that can be extended with, with certain imaging, is thrombolysis treatment. So there's an injection we can give, and the aim of that is to break down the clot in the brain to restore blood flow. And the second is mechanical thrombectomy, which has been a game changer in the last few years in treating those patients with the most severe strokes with the biggest blood vessels blocked. The difference that those treatments, sometimes in combination, when given early, can be absolutely remarkable. And as we've talked about before, we've sent people home sometimes the next day if they've mm. been well. Uh, we've had patients come in with completely, and these symptoms happen in seconds and minutes, completely weak, not being able to move their arm and leg, not being able to speak at all, and not being able to see anything out of one side of their body, so that's half of both eyes, to shortly after after the procedure of mechanical thrombectomy, moving the, the limbs against gravity, starting to speak and making big recoveries, sometimes almost full recoveries within, within days. That's amazing. Paul, you and Ollie run this mechanical thrombectomy service at mm. Bart's Health, which is quite a mouthful for me to say as an interviewer, <laughs> but it also treats the highest number of patients in England right yeah. now. So what is it in layman's terms? And in your mm -hmm. words, why is it the future of stroke treatment? So mechanical thrombectomy basically is the name of a procedure in which we basically take very small devices called stents and catheters. Catheters are kind of like tubes, like long tubes, and then stents are sort of small, like metal cages, essentially. And using these devices, what we do is we essentially grab hold of the clot, the thing that's causing the stroke in, in the majority of patients, and we remove it from the body. So we do a physical procedure to actually get rid of the clot and, and remove it. Now, in about 95%, 90 to 95% of cases, according to our most recent sort of analysis and international studies, we are getting about two thirds to 100% of the blood vessels open. So if you think about that, that is a huge change in how this is being treated. The trials were shown to be very successful in 2015, and we've only been able to ramp up our service in the last 12 to 18 months. But in that time, against all of the background of COVID and every other infrastructural and strategic challenge that we faced, we've managed to grow our service into the biggest mechanical thrombectomy service ever to have existed in the United Kingdom. In addition, we're one of the largest services now in Western Europe and Northern Europe, competing with services that have been long established, actually. And we're getting results that are as good, if not sometimes exceeding that, seen in international trials. And that's in large part because of the work done at the front door and in the A&E by Ollie and his team, by myself and my team in doing the treatments and having more and more and more experience on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, my colleague just was doing a procedure which had complete restoration of blood flow within about 25 minutes from the wrist. The procedure was done in a 34-year-old. I can't say any more really without potentially risking who she is. But if you think about that, that's a 34-year-old lady. Her whole life is in front of her. Maybe she's married, maybe she's not. Children, 
career, everything is ahead of her. And to have a stroke at that age from whatever cause, that's life-changing, potentially fatal. And so for us to be able to deliver this service to not only people in northeast London, but in Kent, Essex, Cambridgeshire, all the way out to Norfolk and Norwich and Peterborough, as well as Margate down in Kent, covering a population of about eight to nine million people in such a rapid time span is frankly borderline uh, miraculous, I would say. And, and we are getting a lot of, let's say, positive news coming out from and positive kudos from other people around the world who've seen what we've managed to deliver for our patients and patients of other hospitals, actually. It's great to hear, mate. For the listeners and myself, I want to move on to aftercare now because they may know someone who's had a stroke and the event itself is obviously traumatic and a shock in many ways, but for a lot of people, it can often not actually be the main cause of stress for them. And that's because sometimes the aftercare and rehabilitation period, which can cause a long period of stress because of the way it affects someone who's gone through it. And there's a whole spectrum of how they can be affected. It really differs from person to person. So tell me about that rehabilitation period after the stroke, Holly. As I alluded to earlier, after the acute phase with the emergency treatment and, and the monitoring, the, the focus is us working as a team on the stroke unit in the rehabilitation phase. Now, afterwards, the patient, this is a sudden shock, you know, shocking event in a, lot, in a lot of patients. Sometimes your ability to understand speech or produce it has been affected, sometimes severely, you know, affected your independence and your ability to, to let's say, look, uh, look after yourself, feed yourself, dress yourself. All of these in isolation or together can be very shocking to a patient and relatives. And that's something that everyone, especially us as a team, needs to be aware of. The rehabilitation work with the team of physiotherapists, mainly focusing on, on your mobility, occupational therapists that are also focused on issues with cognition and function, and speech and language therapists looking at swallowing and your speech. Initially, um, assessments are performed to see where the issues are and we meet regularly to set goals for patients also involving them and the process of recovery that we know happens up to six months and beyond now there's more evidence that rehabilitation extends beyond that part of it is what we were mentioning earlier in terms of brain plasticity your brain making new connections rewiring for recovery and it's also the process of you being aware of the issues and what we call deficits and being able to compensate for them. And that's part of rehabilitation too. So it's often just after a stroke, your awareness can be of where the issues are can be impaired. It's a bit difficult to describe to, uh, to patients sometimes, or a bit difficult for patients to understand initially. Let's say, for example, when someone has a, a visual impairment where the back of the brain that controls your vision is affected, they may have reduced vision or loss of vision out of the right side of both eyes but their awareness of that might be quite limited and therefore they're at risk of falls, injury, their ability to function independently is difficult. However, once rehab is a part of the compensating for that and the awareness, the insight mm. into that. When it comes to my own experience in this rehabilitation period, my dad went from someone who was very emotionally closed before his stroke to now someone who's very emotional. And my mum constantly jokes that he didn't cry at the birth of his four children or any of them, but he mm. cries at any mention of mm. when Huddersfield Town, my football team, won the playoffs in 2017 at the mere mention of it. So <laughs> I also know that people who've had 
family members or friends who have gone through strokes can have vastly different emotional responses. They can almost become different people or they can mm. behave in different ways. How can you explain that variation for me, Paul? So it's quite common, actually, that after a, either a stroke or like the blockage type of stroke that we've already discussed, but also the bleeding type of strokes, one of which is called a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is yeah, a, a, that's a, what my dad had. Yeah, yeah so a, a, a blood leaks from an aneurysm and it sort of coats the surface of the brain that these kinds of things can trigger changes in the uh, the emotions of people and actually the personalities as well now we don't fully understand where let's say where in the brain personality and crying at a football game or crying at the, <laughs> the birth of a child resides <laughs> but you know this is this is actually quite a common thing and just to pick up on a couple of points that were mentioned earlier by Ollie, any disease, but often a, a disease that affects the brain, it affects, let's say, two groups of people. One is the person themselves, and then the other group is the loved ones, the friends, the family, and the, and the carers, let's say, right? And all parties, both parties, they kind of need to, wherever possible, retain as much hope for the future as possible. Those people that engage in those family members and carers and support uh, support staff, let's say, support structures, those people who are very engaged with rehab, who understand that this is a process that you may not necessarily go back to complete normality, let's say in two days, three days, four days, but simply engage and continue with the exercises and, and do everything that they can, they will have a better outcome. Okay. And so we have to understand that these are the sorts of things that we're dealing with. And sometimes that outcome is slow, but just look for the 1% gain every day or every week, just a slight, small improvement every time. Maybe it's a picking up a pencil in week three. Next time it's actually writing something. Don't worry if it doesn't look like your normal writing. It's still a step forward and every step forward is still moving forward. And, and that's what we need to remember when, when you're in the rehab phase. It sounds like from what you're saying, Paul, that the most important thing here and something that I don't have a lot of, and my dad definitely didn't have a lot of before he went through a stroke and still doesn't yeah. really have a lot of now, is patience when it comes to this process. So absolutely, how do the listeners support that person who might have gone through a stroke and have that patience, but also without maybe infantilizing them further? Yeah. So this is an interesting thing because my family have always said I uh, I lack patience. <laughs> But about to learn thing, it quickly. No, no exactly. <laughs> I don't, I, if I knew that, that'd be a pill that would make us all very rich very quickly. <laughs> so I think patience. But the other thing I think is, particularly for ourselves, and it's something that we touch on nowadays in, in wider society, but it's, let's say, self-compassion. We have to remember that many of these people, you know, they're sort of in their 60s or 70s. They have literally lived their entire lives. They are fully independent. They're driving around. They're doing their shopping. They're living life to the full. And then all of a sudden, they're struck down by this potentially very debilitating disease. It's no wonder that they might feel sad, depressed, feel like giving up, let's say. Our job as carers, as healthcare professionals and things like that is to say, look, we understand this is a process. If we've treated you and you've had a good, let's say a small stroke, your part of this is to simply engage with the rehabilitation. Don't be too hard on yourself. And sometimes the tendency when we're trying to help people that we care about is to do too much almost. Oh, don't worry, I'll pick up that glass for you. It's probably the wrong thing to do. If they are trying, let them carry on trying. Maybe let them fail even. And when they say, okay, now I need a bit of help. Okay, now help a little bit. But just give, just give a touch of help, just the right amount. 
then you're not really infantilizing what's happening, but you're there still supporting. The tendency by overhelping, which we all want to do for people that we care about and that we love, actually in the long run, probably actually doesn't help. It's the same with children. If my mum were to always have done my maths homework, let's say, I wouldn't have done very well at maths at the end when the exam came up. And as a final question then, before we wrap up, Ollie, what has it been like for you to see these positive stories, like Paula said, of people who have come in and sometimes gone home the next day or, or made a really good recovery even beyond that, whether it's three months down the line, six months down the line, or even one to two years? What has it been like for you as a consultant? It's been an incredible motivator, I think, for me and the team. I speak on behalf of you, but I think I think for me and Paul, it's been a lot of hard work. But the results we're seeing and what the patients tell us in clinic when we review them is an incredible uh, motivation and drive for us. We knew that this treatment was effective. So thrombectomy and, and centralized stroke care was effective. But there is areas of the country in which the service is, is very limited. That was the big motivation for us we wanted to give service to surrounding regions we want to become a a, a multi-regional center and that's what we've achieved in the last 18 months but yes it's been incredibly rewarding and especially when we see that the great outcomes and the great feedback from patients and for you paul final thoughts sure i agree with everything that, that ollie said and i think one of the things we haven't mentioned yet is actually we obviously have to record and monitor all of our results at three months to sort of look at how we're doing and compare ourselves to international standards and the trials and things like this. And in the latter part of last year, what we found was that almost 60% of the patients that underwent a mechanical thrombectomy at our unit, they went back to functional independence after having a stroke. Now, if you think about that, that's a huge, huge benefit, not only to those patients and their families and friends, but to society in general. Those people then don't need necessarily long-term care. They can maybe go back to work if they're still working. You know, their loved ones don't need to take time off or early retirement to support them, et cetera, et cetera. So these kinds of services, they have not only individual impacts and personal impacts like we're talking about. It's great for us. It's so rewarding seeing these people. I, I, did, I did a case on a lady who was 97 couple of weeks ago and she was completely normal the next day you know and she told me how she was painting uh, I think she said she was painting uh, war aircraft during World War II I mean if we can't help these sorts of people like why the hell am I a doctor (laughs) you know so you know some people might say oh it's you know it's a waste of money for this that and the other but not in my eyes that person was living her best life and independent and she's someone's mother, someone's grandmother. So if, if you meet the criteria, and there are criteria for having this treatment, but those criteria are always sort of expanding, and we're learning more and more, we will do the treatment. If we think it's going to benefit you, we will do the treatment. And the beauty for the patients in the UK is you don't have to worry about the costs or anything like this. All you have to worry about is staying positive afterwards, doing the rehab, and really trying to engage with all of that stuff afterwards to make the best recovery you can. So those are some of the things that I found as like really positive drivers for why I want to continue to do this treatment and what gets me up at three in the morning to come into hospital and do this. And it's the same for Ollie, I'm I'm sure. What a good note to end on. Ollie, Paul, thank you so much for coming on Treating You. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Freddie.
Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Treating You with Dr. Paul Bogle and Dr. Oliver Spooner. Thank you to them for coming on. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to, share it on social media and give us a review and five-star rating if you're feeling helpful on Apple Podcasts. If you're a journalist and would like to get in touch, please contact us at bartshealth.pressoffice at nhs.net or you can visit bartshealth.nhs.uk slash pressoffice for more information. Stay safe, look after yourselves and we'll be back soon to treat you with another episode. Thank you.